This podcast was recorded on Thursday, March 1st at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I think they've heard more about all that bullshit last year than they've heard about, you know, the budget highlights. But that's just my point of view. Minister Bill Morneau calling bull on all the political and personal controversies he faced last year. There is a long list from forgetting to disclose the private company that held a French villa, to the small business tax changes that angered doctors, to the daily grilling over allegations he was personally pocketing millions from his role as finance minister, and questions about why his shares in his family company were not being held in a blind trust. My capacity as leader of the opposition I am officially calling on Bill Morneau to resign as finance minister. The only Canadians not upset about the proposed tax changes were the ultra-rich, a class to which both Prime Minister Trudeau and finance minister Morneau belong. How do you explain to them tax reforms that basically say to them, why bother with the student loans? Why bother with the hundreds of hours that you're going to put in when really you're going to make sure that everybody is the same in the end? While back to the finance minister's illegal and unethical activity, for two years he hid tens of millions in Morneau Chappelle stock in Alberta, profiting from decisions he was making. I had a constructive discussion with the Ethics Commissioner this morning, and I told her it was the intent of myself and my family to donate any difference in value in my family shares from the time I was elected. Well, he has now placed his shares in Morneau Chappelle in a blind trust. Is this something that he should have done much sooner? Yes. Uh, Veronica Tang from Global News. Uh, my questions are actually for Minister Morneau. Um, I'll take them. I don't know what's wrong with the guy. He just can't seem to help but end up in hot water. Well, now Morneau has tabled a brand new budget. It's a fresh page, perhaps, after so many negative headlines. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. We'll have an interview with, as he insists, the real Bill Morneau on what the past year has been like in his Canadian Mexican made leather shoes. I just want to get out the word sheer incompetence as often as I can for the rest of the year. So that's my goal, and I'm trying to enlist my colleagues to do that too. Okay, Until talk, the 30th talk in the microphone so I can test it. So you can, um, you know, uh, tape me saying stupid things, or at least silly. Hi, I'm Bill Morneau, uh, Finance Minister. Mr. Morneau, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. I want to chat with you about the last year, and then we'll... we'll uh, talk about the good things I'm sure you'll tell me that are in budget 2018. Well, last year was good too. Really? Because it didn't seem like you had such a great year. Look at what's actually happened over the course of the last year. I mean, we see that more Canadians are working. We see that Canada's led the G7 countries in terms of growth. When you're a finance minister, those are the metrics that matter. You want Canadians to be working because Canada works when Canadians are working. And that's exactly what we're seeing. 
That's true. We have had a surprising amount of growth. And well, not really surprising to us. I mean, what we said a couple of years ago was that we needed to make investments in Canadians. We saw ourselves in a tough economic position because oil prices plummeted, because there hadn't been investments in the years before we came into office. And our premise, which uh, we've certainly proved to be uh, valid, is that if you invest in people, they'll actually put the money back into the economy. And so when a plan works, you need to trumpet what's actually happening. And it's provided Canadians with more confidence to do what they should be doing, which is to you know, build on their family's future, build on their own future, and as a result, help all Canadians through a better economy. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, take a step back and sort of go back uh, nine months. What, in your estimation, happened? Maybe I can take you back right to the very beginning. Okay. What we observed, and I think a lot of Canadians have uh, understood that this is uh, an important thing for us to consider, is that Canadians uh, who had the possibility of doing so were privately incorporating themselves. And they were doing that because in... Uh, some cases, it was possible to reduce their tax rate either in the current year or over the long term by doing that. So the two ways that we identified that people were able to change their situation, one is you privately incorporate and you pass some of the income you have to your spouse or your children. And what we said is that is fine if you're running a small business and if your spouse or your children are in the business. But if they're not, if they're uh, not engaged at all, that is not really appropriate, that you should be lowering your taxes just because you're able to privately incorporate. The second thing we said is, over the long term, you can, you can provide yourself with some advantage on deferring taxation by leaving money inside a private corporation, so you're paying the lower small business tax rate. And if you're doing that just to increase your retirement account with significant assets growing there, it's not really the purpose that we have with the small business rate, which is to have money in the incorporated vehicle so you can reinvest in the economy and grow new jobs and, and help everyone. And it's perhaps unfair to those Canadians who are employed and get a paycheck and don't have this investment vehicle. Well, exactly. I mean, if you're, if you're a Canadian who uh, is investing in an RRSP, you can invest up to about $25,000 or so into that in each given year, depending on your earnings. And what you can do if you've got a privately incorporated vehicle, at least in the rules that were in place until we've changed them, is you could take $500,000 of earnings in a given year. And if you weren't going to pay any of that out to you in current salary, you pay a 15% tax rate and you end up with $425,000 that you don't pay tax on and invest it. And then you eventually pay tax whenever you take that money out. So our observation was that's not really fair. It is clear that if you're the small business and you need that money to invest, we want you to be able to do that. But we don't want to be in a situation where that unfair advantage just to save more is there only for you know the small people who have that advantage. That was the goal. We put forth some uh, proposals. Really, it was a consultation paper in July on how we intended to deal with these issues that we saw that were important to get at. And as you know, I mean, you're, you're asking really what happened. We had an awful lot of uh, pushback, uh, some informed pushback from accountants and lawyers who said that the a way that we were trying to do this was going to create some complexities that were going to be challenging for 
legitimate small businesses and some just anxiety from small businesses that were concerned that this might actually impact them. It was always our intent to make sure that we were only hitting at the place where we saw that there was a, an advantage going to the very small subset that had significant assets being parked there. Um, so in the face of, of that uh, consternation from many voices, we listened hard. So we had a period during the fall where it was very noisy and it was incumbent on me to listen to Canadians and to understand what the concerns were. And I think what we came up with was uh, a solution that met our objectives, but dealt with the concerns that, uh, that those voices brought forward. In some ways, I felt like the government actually wanted to have a battle with uh, Canadians who use um, these private corporations. I mean, it was something that they highlighted in the platform, it was something they talked about during the campaign. It seemed like the government actually wanted that fight, but that they lost kind of track of the narrative as things unfolded. I can say that that uh, certainly I didn't want a fight. What I wanted to do was make sure the tax, tax system was fair. Uh, and perhaps you could make the, I think, valid argument that we underestimated the amount of pushback that we would get. Changing taxes is a challenge. People that are disadvantaged by the change are always going to reject the core premise. It's not in their interest to accept the premise. We think we found the right answer. Um, we'll continue to, of course, listen to people to see if there's any small tweaks as we go through the legislative process. But uh, it was important to listen. and. It's a good learning. One thing I feel, and maybe I'm overstretching here, but it feels like you also learned to be a politician and grow perhaps a bit of a tougher skin. Because the other thing that happened while all this debate about the policy was happening were all these very personal attacks that were happening on Parliament Hill. Um, the finance critic, Pierre Poiliev, uh, no stranger probably to this audience, you know, is known as a bit of a pit bull, and he certainly went after you, whether it was about the villa that had not been disclosed in the corporation that Mary Dawson, the ethics commissioner at the time, was unaware of, or if it was these allegations that there was insider trading that you were cleared of in the fall, uh, or it was this idea that uh, Bill C-27, which was a bill that is currently still before the House, um, was a financial benefit to you and your company, Morna Chappelle, and whether or not the big issue, I guess, was about why your stocks in Morneau Chappelle were not in a blind trust. This minister was hiding $20 million of Morneau Chappelle shares wow. in only one of his holding companies. Listen, I know the finance minister is getting irritated by the process of accountability around this place, Mr. Speaker, but he did not reveal all of his assets to the ethics commissioner. He kept hidden his offshore company in France, and that's why she found him in violation of the law and required he pay a punitive fine. Now he, he's hiding other assets within different holding companies. He could make these questions go away if he'd simply tell Canadians what is he hiding in his vast network of numbered companies and trust funds. Well, that's a lot of stuff you just said. Yes. Uh, Look, taking it to the high level, what does it tell me? I mean, clearly politics is a rough sport. And when you come from doing what I was doing, which was in the private sector, uh, I had the opportunity to grow a business, you know, significantly, and that was positive. Uh, you don't get into the cut and thrust of the political world uh, in, that, uh, in that private sector experience. So, so I experienced that. I also came to understand that uh, accusations or 
or things that people say, they don't have to be true for people to say them. Mm -hmm. Um, Or for people to believe them. Or for people to potentially believe them. But what I learned in the end is that irrespective of whether what people are saying is true or false, you have to deal with it. So, you know, the fact that those allegations were, you know, unfounded doesn't mean that I don't have to respond and to make sure that Canadians can have trust and and go out and uh, deal with the cut and thrust of politics. So uh, I hope that what you've said is true. I hope that uh, going through that process has led me to understand that I'm going to have to deal with those things in a way that, uh, you know, properly demonstrates uh, that I understand that there's elements of politics that I need to deal with uh, in order to get my job done. Because really what I came here to do, it's very much about making a difference for Canadians and improving the economy over the long run. If you need to deal with that in order to get to the things that you want to do, then I need to deal with that. The one thing that struck me, there was a press conference in the fall, and um, there's this press room underneath Parliament Hill, the Charles Lynch room. It's kind of dark and sometimes smells pretty moldy. And you came in and you told us that um, this was about the blind trust issue, that you you had acted on the advice that was given to you by the ethics commissioner. She has since come out and said, well, she had no choice but to give you that advice because that was the advice that she'd given other cabinet ministers and members of parliament as well, or public office holders, rather. Um, And she had to be consistent um, that you came out and you said, well, you know, like I followed her advice. In hindsight, I wish that I had done more than what she was suggesting, but I'm now going to sell these family shares. Um, And you seemed a little bit, understandably, I think, emotional. I perhaps naively, uh, thought that, you know, in Canada, following the rules and respecting the recommendations of the ethics commissioner, respecting the recommendations of an officer of parliament, would be what Canadians would expect, would meet up to their high expectations. In fact, what we've seen over the last week is that I need to do more. And that and then a few days later, uh, this, um, these allegations that you had benefited from the stock prices came out and you said you were financially going to donate the difference in price in the stock price to a charity. Why would you do that? The sale of my shares, which I made when I came into office, has been reported in the newspapers. I presume the members of the opposition can read. He's in a conflict of interest that he introduced a bill that helped his own personal wealth grow substantially. And now he's saying, i got to put some guilt money together and try to buy my way out of this problem. He only hacked when he's trapped in the corner. Let's step back. So... What happened there was that uh, the uh, process for me coming into office meant that like all other members of parliament or ministers in the government, I presented my financial situation, full disclosure, uh, to the commissioner, which is what what you're expected to do. So in doing that, uh, she gave me advice on how to best, uh, you know, prepare myself to assure that I was free of any conflicts. So I think the right thing to do is clearly to follow the advice of the parliamentary officer who's responsible for these things. In following that advice, uh, others made criticisms. And what I reflected on was the fact that perhaps had I known the future, none of us do, I would have said, well, I I would have just not bothered having those shares at all earlier on. Uh, That would have been an easier uh, 
conclusion just because then I wouldn't have had to deal with all of these things. Uh, so in the end, uh, I did do that because I just thought that was the best conclusion to allow me to do this job. The reason I did the, um, the donation, uh, you need to remember the context from which I come. So I had already been making significant donations to charity before I came into office. You know, I had the good fortune of being successful in the business world. So, I mean, among the things I had done before coming into office was I founded a boarding school for girls in a refugee camp in northern Kenya for Sudanese and South Sudanese and Somalian girls. So that's the sort of thing I had done as a private uh, individual prior, and it's always been the intent of myself and my wife to continue on those efforts. So when this came up, I just said, uh, I'm going to continue doing that. This is uh, something I'm going to do eventually anyway, so I might as well take the opportunity today to do that. And um, I'm pleased to be able to do that. One of the things that my wife and I are doing right now is we're actually um, creating a scholarship program for the refugee girls from this camp to come to Canada to go to university. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that we like to do ourselves privately. And um, I'm going to continue to do that outside of my job while inside my job, I'm trying to work with my colleagues to ensure that our country does better and better over the long run, both for Canadians and also for, you know, new Canadians to come here and make a life. So this budget has a, it's not a huge spending budget, still $20 billion, it's nothing to sneeze at. Some big things in here, the take it or leave it, shared parental leave that the Prime Minister has signaled for a while, this gender analysis plus budget, huge investments in science and innovation. Um, what for you are the things that you are most proud of? Because you seem to have become the, the yes man in cabinet. There's a little of everything for all of your cabinet colleagues. From my perspective, uh, what I'm always most keen on thinking about is what's going to have a material, long-term, positive impact on Canadians. So the things in this budget that are going to have a long-term impact are clearly the things that will encourage uh, better uh, outcomes for women in the economy over the long term, and hopefully for girls as they think about where they want to actually go into the jobs that they might want and, and see themselves in, in uh, role models. I also think that those investments in science that you just identified, so historic investments in science and granting councils for uh, young researchers uh, is going to make a big long-term difference in creating a better uh, possibility of discovery research in this country. So those are the sort of long-term changes that I think can be really important. For, uh, for women, I think what we, we move forward with on the uh, parental leave where there's a a use it or lose it approach that you can get an additional five weeks if the second partner takes some time. I think that will nudge more parents to m more equally share the burden of uh, parenting over time. I acknowledge that it will take time, but if we look at what's happened in Quebec with the approach that they've taken, it's actually made a big difference. And so taking uh, the sort of approach to uh, federalism that we have a laboratory in the provinces and when something works you should adhere you should apply it across the country I think is uh, good public policy and that that I think if it if it moves the dial that'll be great over time 
Another thing that you seem to have um, taken a page from the Quebec government is Pharmacare or the possibility of Pharmacare. Um, right now it's just an advisory council, but there's been lots said and written and still on Thursday there were questions being asked by the NDP about was is the system going to be means tested or not. What is the Pharmacare system that you envision? I don't envisage a system yet because uh, I think we need to get the advice of experts to make sure we get it right. But you've suggested that the gap that needs to be filled is people who are not covered and that they would be means tested. A signature NDP promise now potentially on track to be implemented by the Liberals. So it'll be means-based? Well, we're dealing with the people who don't have it, and we're trying to find a way to ensure that it's there. Uh, well, I haven't suggested the latter. I've, I've certainly said the, the former issue is, is the critical issue. The critical issue is that right now all Canadians don't have access to pharmaceuticals. That is the issue. So to me, uh, the fact that we have a gap where people don't have access to pharmaceuticals at a time when pharmaceutical products are... Uh, increasing in price at a pace that's hard to keep up with because it's faster than inflation. And at a time where some of those pharmaceutical products are extremely expensive is, is a big problem. Means testing, I don't know where that idea came from. You were uh, asked about it on the CBC. Uh, if someone interpreted that, they would have been incorrect. So my view on means testing uh, is that it uh, there's a place in, uh, in our system for means testing. What we did with Canada Child Benefit, I think, was appropriate. We said that for families that are doing really well, they don't necessarily need child benefits. Pharmaceuticals are quite different. There's a real need for insurance for pharmaceutical products. We live in a world where some pharmaceutical products are very expensive. Some people have, you know, multiple um, things that they, pharmaceutical products they need. I have one of my children who is regularly on uh, a series of medications that I know are very expensive. So I, I've personally seen how expensive they can be. Uh, that system doesn't work as well for means testing, just to state the obvious. It's one that uh, encourages you to think of insurance so that you can actually uh, spread that risk along a, a much bigger group of people. I think the issue that, uh, that I was identifying, which I think is the appropriate issue to think about, is uh, we need to think about how we can deal with that problem in a way that's fiscally responsible. I don't have a conclusion on how that approach uh, will be taken. We do need to do more work. The, this is a very dynamic problem. What, the way it looked 10 or 20 or 30 years ago is not the way it looks today. So. Uh, in my career, I saw a really big change in benefit plans because my firm, my private sector firm, uh, was the largest benefits consultant. And those plans changed a lot over the years. They uh, changed both in terms of how many people were covered because increasingly we're seeing more people that ha are uh, agents or consultants, so there's more people who might not have a benefits plan. Uh, they also changed because increasingly they became plans where they were what they call flexible benefit plans, which means people actually had a sum of money to use to buy uh, whatever they needed in their benefits plan, which uh, was an approach that many firms started to use, and one that can work, I suppose, but can also sometimes be problematic, because if there's a pharmaceutical product that's too expensive for your pot of money, that can be a problem. So. It's a complex problem. So what you envisage, though, it sounds like, is a plan that would f fulfill the gaps in the system. What I envisage is we need to get the advice 
from the group that's looking at this. We need to consider the challenges before we jump to conclusions. And uh, what I'm hearing from people is they want to jump to conclusions. I think the way to get at this is to make sure we consider the complexity of the system, the current way people are getting uh, pharmaceutical products delivered, uh, the way that the uh, provincial plans work for big segments of the population, uh, the way that benefit programs work or don't work, and most importantly, uh, the gap. We also need to think about it in a dynamic way because I don't think that it's appropriate for us to come up with a public policy approach that doesn't think about how is the potential um, employment pattern going to change over time. This is why we asked uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins to look into this. Uh, this is why we're taking seriously his uh, recommendations that will come out sometime, I hope, within the next year or so. Spring 2019 that, is what he told us. Okay, well, that's how we'll get to a conclusion, not by uh, thinking we know the answer before we do the homework. Sounds like you also learned from last year to get your ducks in a row and get your stakeholders before you're making an announcement. This week's budget was particularly bulletproof from opposition attack. Being an NDP budget with a warm and fuzzy gender theme, even the Conservatives had trouble trashing, lest they appear anti-women. Bill Morneau is probably the happiest guy in Ottawa to hear all of us saying things like, well, it's a quiet budget or it's not too aggressive about this or that. What we saw in the budget was the government spending lots of money. It does sound as though we've got very rosy projections. No, no recession for five years uh, would really make that the longest recession-free period in history. Businesses are very worried not only about the tax and regulation disparity between Canada and the United States, but we really are adding on some extra costs, whether it's a minimum wage, whether it's carbon tax. So I'm, I'm not confident that we're going to get such a strong economy going forward. I think there's some real dangers there. And when you've got such big deficits, where's your room to move? I mean, you haven't left yourself much space if we do get into trouble. You know, we like to spend a lot of time talking about budget deficits, we being reporters, and that's usually how we read the budget. And in this budget, uh, you've shown us that the projections that you had last fall for a deficit are going to be even smaller than uh, you have su earlier suggested. In but fact, there is, each year, what you've seen is, is that, that we've done better than our forecasts. But for those at home who, uh, you know, voted for the Liberal government in 2015 on this promise that there would be a budget back to balance, there are obviously questions about why you appear, and the government appears to be not at all focused on returning into black. And a lot of people, especially on the right, are suggesting, you know, the economy is doing well. This would be a time where we should not be spending this much money. We should be paying down our debt. We should be saving for when the dark clouds come, which they will eventually uh, arrive. So why not take a more prudent, perhaps, approach to fiscal planning? I would argue that we're taking a very prudent approach I'm sure to fiscal you would. planning. <laughs> but uh, I think... Uh, why not putting, spend less? Putting aside argument and considering facts. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to be in a place, uh, and I think this is a fair argument, where your economy is resilient to deal with challenges. What you hear from uh, economists is that means you need to have the capacity to deal with a turn down in the economy. Our economy among the G7 countries, as you've heard me say before, has the lowest amount of debt as a function of the size of its overall GDP. That's a really good place to be.
The argument that uh, was made by the opposition that we should seek austerity and cuts. Uh, I don't believe- think they were saying seek austerity and cuts. I think they were just saying stop spending so much. You can't really have it both ways. So when well, you could say, not have spent twenty billion dollars extra. I think you should parse what we're doing and look at where uh, we're making investments and where we're doing things that you think are spending. I would argue. This that is not me. I'm just repeating the arguments that uh, your opposition is leveling against and, and you. Their opposition. You call them investments, and they call them spending. Well, let's evaluate that. I mean, people will have to come to their own conclusions to decide whether. Uh, building the um, the uh, system in Montreal, the Réseau Electronique de Montréal, or uh, REM, whether that's an investment in the future or whether that's actually spending. People will need to decide whether, you know, roads and bridges across the country to help people to get back and forth to work are investments or spending. They'll have to consider whether building uh, a lab so that we can uh, have scientists deal with the implications of big data is an investment in our future so we can come up with better scientific discovery or whether it's spending. Uh, so we're making investments. I, I would uh, stand up to anyone and say these are important long-term investments in our country. But I would also say that we are doing it in a fiscally responsible way. If we weren't able to lower the debt as a function of our GDP over time, then perhaps the arguments of the opposition would be sustained. But we have been able to do that. And we continue to be able to do that because the investments we've made in Canadians have meant that more people are working, have meant that our economy is growing. And that's the outcome that we were seeking. Let me ask you about the U.S. tax changes. There's only one line in your budget um, that uh, addresses the drastic corporate income tax cuts that uh, Donald Trump has introduced in the United States and then Congress is reviewing. Um, why do, are you not more concerned about the potential impact on Canada's competitiveness and potentially foreign investment um, from those tax changes? Of course I'm concerned, but let me just step back. You know, I ran a business mm-hmm. and uh, my business's competitiveness was not about taxes. It was uh, important to have a competitive tax situation, but I thought first about, uh, you know, did I have a, uh, a talented group of people working in the business? Did uh, we have uh, a great business idea? Did we have an approach that was going to be successful in the marketplace? Did we have clients or customers that were doing well because the economy was doing well to actually buy our services? Uh, those were all the things that we thought about. And then we thought about long-term, is this a stable place to do business? And uh, as you think about Canada and you think about the Canadian competitive advantage, those are the things I think about alongside a competitive tax rate. So we can't say that this is the only issue around being competitive. It is one important one, but there's many others. We need to recognize that taxes are always going to be important. People are always going to make investment decisions Mm -hmm. with taxes as one aspect of that decision. So we didn't have anything to announce in the budget. The fact that the regulations haven't all even been solidified in the United States means it wouldn't be appropriate to deal with those changes now, even if we wanted to. Uh, There's a reason you're not seeing other countries change their tax code 60 days after the United States has changed the tax code. No, but they're not every country lives right next door and maybe as affected as we I think that's a fair point. I think we are are in a different situation than other countries, which means we need to do our homework. 
Well, it sounds like what you're saying is you're also opening the door at the possibility of introducing tax changes should you feel they are necessary next budget. Our door is always open to considering how we keep our tax code effective, but also how we ensure that it stays fair. Bill Morneau, I would like you to tell me um, how you think that you've changed in this third year of being a federal politician, well, politician for the first time. Well, I'm 55, and when I came in, I was younger. Uh, I think I have a little more gray hair on the sides of my, uh, my head, but maybe not as much as I thought I would have by now. I certainly have a little more scar tissue from going through some rough political battles, but I think that's part of the job. Uh, I have a better sense of uh, the importance of the work because you get to see uh, the outcomes from what you do each year. So in year one, you can't really predict exactly what will happen in year two, and in year two, you can't predict what will happen in year three. But you start to see a cycle, and you start to see the kind of impact you can have, which for me, gives me more enthusiasm for the role. You can really see that there can be a lasting impact by building better policies on top of better policies that are having a really positive impact. So uh, I think I've uh, changed in that sense that I've become more enthused about the possibilities from the role and, uh, you know, continue to think that uh, we got into the office for the right reasons. Will you run again? Yes. Thanks for 2019. 2019. And beyond, perhaps, question mark. Well, that I'm not going to answer right now. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bill Morneau is Canada's finance minister. Now we're going to completely switch gears and bring in two of my colleagues who are diligently working on a new video series called Backbenchers. It's politics themed, if the name wasn't a clue already, and it's just to justify all the hours they spend watching Question Period. Hi there, this is Ryan Maloney. And this is Mohammed Omar. And we're the hosts of Backbenchers. Backbenchers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, guys, what's Backbenchers? I think we're we're hoping to sort of follow up what we've been doing at HuffPost for a while. As you know, is we like to cover the serious, the lighthearted, the hilarious, the ridiculous of Canadian politics, and a lot of that has become, you know, visual. We were talking about this. Most people don't have a kind of job where you get to kind of watch what's happening in the House of Commons as we do yeah. all day, and uh, they don't get a chance maybe to watch Question Period as closely. So this is just a way for us to highlight some things that are happening that that we think are funny or interesting and. Hopefully others will too. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked uh, so that people don't actually love watching Question Period every day and, you know, <laughs> like to do other things like hang out with their families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people who care about them, other yeah. interests. Yeah. I miss you, Mom. Okay. I mean, what? <laughs> Why did you guys decide to call it Backbenchers? Uh, well, that's probably one of the least ridiculous names we came up with. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, uh, ministers or the prime minister leaders often get a lot of attention, but... 
the people who are sort of off a little bit behind, who are often great characters and like to sort of observe what's going on or, or jump in there with their own uh, criticisms or heckling or what have you. Um, I think that's kind of what we're going for, too. We're, we're not pretending that we're, uh, you know, these great uh, stars, but we're, we're, we're here, we're watching things, uh, we're taking it all in, we're happy to be there, and we're trying to do our part, too. Well, Mo and Ryan, you are both stars to me. <laughs> That's high praise. That's high yeah. praise coming from Althea. Yeah, I'm sweating profusely right it's now. It's going to our heads already. <laughs> We're just going to our heads already. Okay, we look forward to watching, and a show begins on Tuesday, March the 6th, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, it'll be online somewhere. All right. The website. Somewhere. Right? Sorry. I have posts. Our website, TA. primarily. The websites that we work on, yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's our look at the attempted redemption of Bill Morneau. If you enjoyed this episode on iTunes, please leave us a review. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can share your tips and story ideas by reaching me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. We will be off for two weeks, but we will see you back here after MPs return from their spring break. A big thank you to Zian Lum and Stephanie Warner, who helped produce this show. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you very much for listening.